This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Best practices. You likely hear that phrase a lot especially on the internet, there's no shortage of topics that discuss best practices really in any industry. But have you actually studied how these best practices are executed versus what they just say about what a best practice should be? That's our main topic for today's show. And I welcome you into another episode of Cyberly. I'm your host, Blythe Brumleave. And on this show, we cover B2B marketing, the attention economy, and how it all fits into the world of logistics. And in this show, let's go ahead and set up the roadmap for today. We are talking about content and logistics advice from Mr. Beast. He is one of the most, I guess, the most famous YouTuber on the planet with 220 million subscribers. Then we have our first guest who's going to be Liz Wayne. She is the president and founder of Able Transport Solutions. She's going to be talking about some new initiatives over at the TIA, which she's also a board member about women in logistics and running a freight brokerage in a male-dominated industry. And then finally, we were going to talk to Nick Chubb, not the running back, but the owner of Theodis. It is a dad data-driven and software advisory company for the maritime industry. It's our last interview from the Manifest Conference. So we've been able to sort of, you know, uh, get pan these interviews out for a long period of time, close to two months now. Um, so we're going to close out the show with that. But for our first topic, I want to talk about the new mainstream media, and that's content marketing lessons from Mr. Beast. And sort of a, you know, as part of my career journey, I've transitioned from studying athletes and sports leagues to studying creators. And there are no, two, there are probably the two people on the planet that are the hands down the best at content marketing. And that is Joe Rogan and Mr. Beast. And both of them were on the same show last week. And it was a content marketing masterclass and also exhibit A of what the new mainstream media is. And this show wouldn't be a show about the attention economy if we didn't talk about two of the largest creators on the planet and some of the lessons that they talked about during this interview. So but for before we dive into some of those takeaway lessons, let me give you a first a little bit of a background on who Mr. Beast is and why you should care. Well, he's 23 years old. He's been making YouTube videos since he was 11 years old. He has 220 million subscribers across five of his channels. I believe it's five. It might be four. Um, but do you remember, you might remember the show called Squid Games that was on Netflix. Well, Mr. Beast made a reaction video, sort of a reaction video, recreating what happened during Squid Games. Nobody died, you know, and it was not that intense of the actual real Squid Games. But the recreation that he created from it actually ended up getting more eyeballs on this video than Netflix has subscribers. And it was millions and millions. So 220 million YouTube subscribers. It was slightly more than 200, I think, million views on this Squid Games video. And that is just a massive amount of attention that is going towards one person 
one creator. And it arguably was his first moment that he stepped over into from just being known as a YouTuber and now stepping into the mainstream audience where other folks are wondering, well, who is this Mr. Beast person and why should I care? And he has essentially redefined what mainstream is. And I'm using mainstream in quotes here because We've sort of grown up with what the idea of a mainstream news outlet is, but he has transitioned into really becoming one of the mainstream voices that's on the internet today. So I believe that we should be learning from creators like this, especially when they openly share this information out on the internet so that that way you might not go and subscribe to Mr. Beast, but you can watch how he actually attacks his YouTube videos, the structure of his YouTube videos, and how he promotes his content to getting out in the world. Because we can all take a little bit of lessons from each of these top creators because they're top for a reason. So if we can take a couple of pieces of advice from there, then we should absolutely do it. So let's go ahead and break down some of those top marketing lessons, content marketing lessons from Mr. Beast on Joe Rogan. Let's go ahead and play the first clip on realizing what you can scale. This is probably one of the okay. smartest things we've done um, is uh, we have multiple different teams that we're working on building out. So they rotate videos. So team A will do hypothetically whatever, Antarctica, and then team B isn't on the, the Antarctica video and they're working on the next video. And then while I'm filming with team B, team A is working on their video. So they like rotate. So that way, and I, I'm trying to build out full, fully fledged production teams, creative teams, editing teams, all super independent. So then I can do a video a month and each team's only responsible for one video, which that's plenty of time to like get a video done and you know and you have downtime in between your videos and stuff like that instead of like most youtubers it's just one team and they're trying to have them do it all which just honestly isn't sustainable yeah well it seems like in, in your when you're looking at this business that you've built it's so large like there's no way you could just have one team they'd be yeah. dead well you'd be surprised that's how everyone else is building theirs and so using that experience from somebody who is used to creating content on a day, almost a daily basis, you recognize pretty quickly that you need to have systems in, in, in place in order for you to help execute on those content ideas on a regular basis. So recognizing what you can scale, things like editing, uh, outsourcing to freelancers for that editing process, writing, um, posting to social media, all of those things are scalable. What you can't scale is Mr. Beast on camera. And so that's a good sort of takeaway for a lot of companies out there that are looking for ways to increase their brand awareness and they're looking for ways to really capitalize on sort of the growing creator movement within the freight industry and recognizing what you can scale and what you can't scale will save you a lot of time and it will save you a lot of headaches. Also, there was another tip that he talked about and it was batching your content and using calendar blocks. Let's play the content schedule that Mr. Beast follows. Usually... On Mondays, I film for gaming. On Tuesdays, I film for Reacts. And then and then I do World once for uploading again. Wednesday through Fridays, I film for, on the main channel. And then Saturdays, when I do Beast Burger Feastables and like all my side businesses, I take calls. And then I try not to work on Sunday. Perfect example of blocking out your calendar and then also batching your content. Those two things can help any business owner, especially for, I mean, Mr. Beast is a full-time creator. 99% of us out here are not full-time creators making a really good income. And so we have to weave content into our workday, into running our business and doing the million other things that we have to do in our daily and weekly and monthly lives. So knowing that you want to still place an importance on creating content. And the only way that you can do that is by blocking off that time in your calendar devoted to maybe 
once a week, every Thursday, you're going to spend the first three hours of every Thursday writing down video ideas that you can talk to your audience about. No, uh, every single week, you are going to spend that same time and that same energy on just that one thing. So then that way, you know, you're not going to take meetings during this time. You're not going to prioritize anything else. You're prioritizing your content. And then you can outsource it to freelancers who can help you with the editing process and with posting to social media and all of the rest of the steps that are in your system. But you're not going to be able to even take advantage of that system unless you actually record and write out the content yourself. So calendar blocking and batching helps a ton. And what I mean by batching, I mean having a few different video ideas ideas. Maybe the first, you know, that three hour example that I just gave you, maybe the first hour you're writing out your scripts of what you actually want to talk about in a five or 10 minute long video. And then the last two hours of that, are you actually filming those videos? Then you can send it off in a package format out to a freelancer, and then you can take advantage of still making content and prioritizing it. But then the rest of your week is spent running the business like you need to do because those are revenue streams. But using the content marketing model, then you can have the regular brand awareness that is coming onto your company or that is raising the brand awareness for your company on a regular basis without you really having to think about it. So that's another good lesson that I got from this interview. But now for the logistics angle and also the content marketing angle is being helpful with your content. Let's play the clip on how to procure 10,000 turkeys for charity. How does one procure 10,000 turkeys? Well, that one, again, this is why the beauty of these fancy, that was a sponsored video by Genio, which is a company that sells turkeys. And so we got them to give us 10,000 turkeys plus money to feed people for free in exchange for a shout out in the video. So a little bit of background for that particular clip. He actually has an entire channel dedicated to philanthropy. So he has his main Mr. Beast channel that he started when he was 11 years old. And now that's that's evolved into several other channels, one of them being charity-driven. And so what he does, because he has so much brand awareness and so much awareness just on himself, what he uses that now for, he says he has plenty of money. So he uses the money that he generates from all of his other channels in order to fund his philanthropy efforts and that that's where i think sets him apart from every other creator that's you know sort of uh, it, it, there's a money there's an end goal in mind so using the awareness that he has already built up and the audience that he has already built up he negotiates these brand deals in order to feed people using these uh pantry models within other small towns so that other pe- other small towns that don't necessarily have enough people in that small town to generate the i guess the the need to have a food bank there. People still need food in these small towns, but it's not enough to justify for a charity to open up shop there. So the way he has the the food pantry model set up is that he sets up in a larger city in North Carolina and several other cities within the US so that the small towns can then come to him in order to increase the distribution of his products and and giveaways of food. And it's really, it's, it's, it's a fantastic initiative and using and knowing that he's taking a lot of his money and taking a lot of his energy to circle it back into a charitable effort. The takeaway lesson here, I think for a lot of businesses is that you don't necessarily need the high profile that he already has and he's already built up, but you can lead by helping others, educating others. doesn't necessarily have to be charitable. That's, I, I feel like, you know, every Every person should have some kind of a charitable aspect to, you know, their yearly lives. Once a year, you know, volunteering at a food bank or something, doing something for somebody else. It feels good. But he's doing this 
at scale. And I think that that is really one of the more important takeaways is that your content can be so many other things than just driving business results. And by developing content that helps other people, you establish trust and people like you and they want to do business with you as a result of that. So that's the takeaway lesson for for that particular clip. And it also circles back to one of the first points is how you can scale because you have to know your strengths. So let's play that clip. Like this is where you have to think about strategically. The most optimal, like, you know, in a perfect world, I could be on the front lines going to the food drive, getting my food. But the most valuable use of my time is to make videos to generate revenue to buy food, right? right. So I'm I'm more doing high-level things like figuring out what's the next viral stunt for the charity so we can do a brand deal and get a couple hundred grand in and stuff like that. I'm not really in the weeds of like, how are we going to do this food distribution tomorrow or like this shipment's late, so blah, blah, this. Right, um, right. But probably somewhere around a dozen right now because we're only at one warehouse. And you eventually plan on going worldwide? Yeah, exactly. Just scaling it up and take... It's like by watching those videos, you're essentially feeding people, literally, because yeah. all the revenue goes to it. So it's like, I think like we can get to the point, yeah, we're, we're supporting a dozen of these and just keep going bigger and bigger. Now, I love that example just because of the charitable angle. I sort of just talked about that at ad nauseum in, in just a second ago. But if you want to go back and watch the rest of the interview, because it really is a content marketing masterclass, I have it linked in the show notes, but you can also go to Spotify and just search for uh, Mr. Beast on Joe Rogan and it should be one of the first results that pops up. Because it, it, if you're in marketing whatsoever, if you're just interested in YouTubers, then that is exhibit A of, of really all the good in the world that can happen happen from creating content and then what you can do with that awareness and and with that audience after you built up you know for so long so why do I share this insight and information with you and that's because the inspiration for content marketing is everywhere and you don't just study what people say online you want to study how they actually get it done. And the best use case that you can do is on yourself. If you're scrolling through your phone and a post makes you stop, if you're if an ad makes you stop, that's called thumb stopping content. You want to then ask yourself and get in the habit of paying attention to what makes you stop and then studying why you think it made you stop. Is the image cool? Is the, the intro text, is, is did that catch your eye? Is it someone's comment to the post that then made you want to go read what they were responding to? All of these different things can help play a role in your strategic content. And I think that by studying other creators, then it really can help you both inside and outside of our industry. It can really give you the ability to pick and choose what will fit best in your current processes and your current structures of how you want to get the word out about your business. Because that's what we're all trying to do. We're all trying to gain brand awareness for the solutions that we are selling or providing. And by studying some of the top creators, both inside and outside of our industry, that's a great way in order to incorporate some of the tactics that may work for you and your own current processes and, and, and current structures of how you have your marketing set up. Okay, so let's move on to our first guest from studying content marketing to studying freight brokerages and what makes them successful. Now's a good time to go ahead and bring on Liz. Now, welcome in Liz. She's president of Able Transport Solutions and TIA board member. Hi, welcome Liz. <laughs> It's very nice to see you again. I feel like it's been months since since we we've uh, w- since we've been talked, but this is a good time to to catch up because you mentioned in your bio that you sort of came into the industry by accident, which is I think absolutely how a lot of folks will get into logistics and freight. 
What was the first moment that you knew that you were going to be a lifer in logistics? Ooh, solid question. Um, probably 10 years in. I definitely so it, it took 10 years because you I was going to say you worked at several different roles within the org within different freight brokerages, right? Yeah, I did. And so I got into it at 18 years old, definitely had never considered it before. So I did go through a period, um, probably about 10 years in where I thought, is this what I want to do? And I kind of went out and looked at other opportunities and, you know, it, it turned out, I didn't find anything as fun as exciting. Um, and it was what I was supposed to be doing. So I'd say at that point I knew I was a lifer. So when did you decide that you wanted to open up your own company? So you'd worked within the industry for a while. And then what was that moment like that you were like, I, I need to open up and run my own company? 2014, 2014. So yeah, it's been um, eight years, I guess, this month uh, that I went out on my own. And definitely my motivations at that time were different than when I decided to scale and really grow ABLE. So in 2014, my goal was to kind of work from home. I thought it would provide me more flexibility with my young kids and this and that. But you know how logistics is, it's 24-7. So that didn't necessarily happen. And then by 2015, um, we had a lot of interesting opportunities in front of us. And that's kind of when I decided to go ahead and hire a team and work on scale and all of that. Now, as you talk about working on scale, because I, I think that a lot of freight brokerages, they'll say, or a lot of 3PLs will say, oh, well, we're all doing the same thing. We're all providing the same service. How are, are you guys at, at Able Transport, how are you guys differentiating yourself from the competitors? Is there a way to differentiate yourself? You know, I think there is. And that's kind of one of my favorite things to talk to shippers about, you know, on a sales call, because they seem to think, well, we have a broker in the mix, so we're covered because you guys all do the same thing. And it's like, well, not really. You know, this is a service business. And so... Hmm. I'm sure everybody has hired a service business for something in their home or, you know, otherwise. And it's not all the same. Customer service isn't the same. The experience isn't the same. Um, the urgency isn't the same. How they leave you feeling isn't the same. So, um, yes, we all probably have a couple of load board subscriptions. And I'd say that's all we have in common. I mean, we're all very different. How are, are so, so there, there's obviously going to be bad actors that are in, in any industry and, and, and really brokerages are, are no different. But say I am a freight broker and I'm working at a company where I know there's t bad leadership. What should I be looking for in a 3PL that makes you want to work? For them? Is there a certain kind of training or, or, or a certain kind of messaging that, you know, a company like yours can sort of put out into the world in order to recruit those better employees? How do, how do you go about, I guess, getting that message across um, to potential freight brokers who might be stuck working at, a, you know, a, a bad spot? Yeah, um, training is really important. We actually, we just took a dive and had somebody, I was going to say hired somebody, promoted somebody into a full-time training position. They started in that last week, but we're really looking forward to that because it's one of the number one ways a broker can differentiate themselves out here. You know, I think most people want to do well, um, but you need the knowledge, you know, and 
you can spend a bunch of years cutting your teeth and learning the hard way and failing shippers along the way. Or, you know, you can have a system and a program in place that gets people the valuable information they need, um, you know, to be successful. Because ultimately, you, 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 you don't want rookies on your customer's freight, right? You don't want to go into a shipper and promise them the knowledge and the experience um, that you have, you know, and then simultaneously let somebody cut their teeth on that freight. So that's definitely very important. Um, how do we get that through to candidates and that? You know, I'm gonna have to figure that out. I'm uh, definitely looking to. We're moving to Omaha in June and um, oh, wow. looking to grow quite a bit when we have the space. And so, um, you know, it's a competitive job market. So being able to portray that to job candidates and to be able to recruit from other industries is going to be mm -hmm. key. You know, there's not that many people searching freight broker positions, but there's a lot of people out here that would be really good at this job. And, and speaking of which, are there skill sets or intangibles or, you know, something that can is trainable for a freight broker that may be coming from another industry? Um, what do you typically look for? Is it just great sales? Is it great customer service? Is it kind of a combination of the two? It kind of is a combination of the two. Overall, you know, urgency goes a really long way in this job um, because, Driver's time is very valuable, you know, as we see. And uh, so, you know, some urgency, um, negotiation skills, of course, are very, very valuable. Uh, our brokers are like carrier sales reps, so they're selling the loads every day. But I think there's a lot of very transferable skills. Like I relate it, you know, really to like waitressing and bartending and stuff because in the life cycle of a load, you know, if you're responsible for however many loads on a given day, they're each at a different point in their life cycle. Some still need sold, you know, some need some cleanup work, some need checked on, um, some need cashed out, they're over. So it's kind of like some people's mind seems to have a really good way of organizing all that information and kind of keeping up on where each different, you know, load or table is in its life cycle. So I think there's a lot of professions out there that can easily transition to freight brokerage if they're given that industry info. I love that, that you brought up waitressing because I feel like that is that helped me early on. It, that Waitressing in my 20s helped me run a business mm -hmm. in my 30s because it is, the, it is the just gold standard of customer service, upselling, management, just everything. And and you really have to have a, a skill set and you only really learn uh, really by trial by fire, I think for a lot of these different industries. And it's so just, it, it's transferable to, to so many other things, waitressing. So um, shout out to all the waitresses and the former servers out there. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, you, you've got the TIA conference coming up. Um, what can folks expect from this year's? Because I think, you know, folks are starting to get back out into conferences, especially 2022. We saw a little <laughs> bit of it last year. But with this year's conference, what should folks anticipate? What should they be looking forward to? Um, give us the, give us a scoop. Yeah, well, I think what we're all most excited about is having a conference. So, <laughs> you know, it will have been three years since the TIA members have all been together at annual conference. Um, so for me, and I know a lot of the people I've talked to, that's really what we're most excited about is just being together again. 
And are, is there anything that you're besides, you know, seeing people, are there any, you know, sort of talks? Like what, what is the sort of, I, I maybe like general consensus of like the industry topics that you guys are going to be covering? Yeah. So I'm most excited, um, you know, to see the freight coach, the freight coach, Chris Jolly, you know, personally, right. I'm excited to hear more about, you know, there's, there's a lot of conversation now that I don't think there was 10 or 15 years ago about training and coaching mm-hmm. in this industry. Um, so I can't say that's going to be new to the TIA conference, but it seems that there's going to be a lot of that content this year, um, which will be awesome because, well, as we just talked about, it's really, really necessary and it's really been lacking for a long time. And and you had just to sort of go back to our earlier conversation. You mentioned that you just re you just hired someone in order to handle all of training. Why why did why did you think that that was sort of a missing link for your business? And and what are you hoping to to gain from from focusing more on training? Yeah. So I mean, you know, I've always known it was important, and actually, it was one of my like differentiating factors early on in the business. And then, you know. Scale as you grow, processes break, they need rebuilt and all of that. And so, you know, I mean, we grew well over 100% last year. So we're, we're kind of going through that. And at some point, you know, towards the end of last year, I kind of look up and look around and it's like, well, you know, we want to be the best in this area. We definitely think we're better than most, but are we exactly where we want to be? And, and is it time to make that investment? And in hindsight, I'm kicking myself, like, why didn't I do this sooner? Um, but you know, it's hard because as you scale, you know, you need to bring on more and more of those positions that don't move loads, right? Like in the beginning, um, everybody moves loads and you all just get through the day and you do it again (laughs) the next day. And so when you bring on those different kind of non-revenue producing positions, um, is, is interesting and it's a big decision to make for a business owner. And, I know I will be kicking myself for not having done this years ago because just the value and someone's full-time energy, full-time hours, full-time attention, making everybody better. Oh, I mean, it's going to be awesome. So you're you're revamping the the training within your company. You're looking forward to to you know talking about training and coaching at the TIA conference. But then there's another aspect to the TIA conference as well, and that's the Women in Logistics Initiative. Can you tell us a little bit about why this was started and 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 what are the goals from this initiative? Yeah. So the Women in Logistics Committee at TIA has been a thing for quite some years, at least as long as I've been a member, um, which is like 13 years. So it's nothing new, but we are kind of trying to revamp it um, in a number of ways. So the first thing we did is develop a new mission statement for it. Um, The next thing we did is invite men into the group because we don't think Hmm. that this is a challenge we can achieve alone. Um, And now we're kind of at that point where we're asking these important questions, you know. I've got, I co-chair the committee with Sarah Ruffhorn from Trinity. Well, Trinity is like, who I'm looking up to um, in my in my journey here of recruiting women into logistics because you know they are really right at like a 50-50 mix. They kind of reflect oh, wow. the general population. And I'm ashamed to say my company doesn't, and I'm working on it, but I think there's a lot of other member companies. Um, I just think it's time to have the conversation. Are are we doing our part? Um, 
are, are do we provide female friendly work environments? Uh, you know, but I, I think that we are missing some women in logistics and I want to talk about it. And I do, you know, I want to do my part to, to find them and recruit them and retain them. And, and I love that you brought that up because now that I'm thinking back on the, the brokerages that I worked at and there were very few women, the, the most women, and this was 10 years ago, but the most women that were usually in the company, they were either working in accounting or working in marketing. And, you know, there's usually only one marketer that's, you know, doing 10 other job titles at the same time. Um, but for the brokers themselves, it very much was like an 80-20 split of like male to female ratio. Why don't you think that more women, you know, sort of gravitate towards some of these roles? Because they can lead to leadership positions. The few women that I do know that were brokers back then, they're now leading different agent offices, you know, all around the country. Why do you think, though, that the initial, I guess, you know, sort of solicitation for women to come work in logistics is could be improved? Yeah, so <clears throat> I would, you know, totally agree. The women that stick around are good, you know, uh, for the most part. We see that all over the board. And so, you know, I kind of went into it like, oh, they just don't know about the industry and we've got to educate them and we've got to get out there and get it in front of them, you know. And then Charlie Safro, you know, has come on a few times and, and helped us and talked to us. And from her end, being a recruiter for our industry, she's come across a lot of women that want out of the industry or that, hmm. you know, they want to stay in the industry, but they want a different experience at their new employer. And so they've kind of shared some stories with her, um, things that I haven't personally experienced. That's why I was kind of naive to them. But, you know, hearing some of those stories led me down the road of, are we female friendly enough? Mm -hmm. And I know that there's plenty of brokerages that are. Um, I think there's probably still some that aren't, um, you know. And so I just think that the the most important thing we can do to start with is like, talk about it, you know, put it on the table. Let's talk about it. Where do we stand? Do we have some goals around this? Um, and, and just, you know, if, if we are not doing our part, you know, as an industry, maybe awareness will help a little bit. Um, but then also companies that get on the mission with us and, and make this commitment, it should be a good place for, for women to apply and work, you know? What do you, for, for somebody who, is, if it's a woman working in another industry, maybe a waitress, or if it's, you know, somebody else, a potential candidate that could be, have those intangible skills in order to move into a freight broker role, what do you mm. wish they knew about the industry before, before joining? I wish they knew that you don't need experience. I mean, you don't, you know, I didn't know anything about trucking when I came into it and um, lucky for inexperienced people, there is so much work to be done <laughs> that you will quickly be able to, to pick it up and contribute. Yeah. I, I think that that's a great point because for, for a lot of folks who just want to jump into the job and not necessarily go through a lot of boring training, you know, training is important of course, but if you want to jump right into, you know, getting your hands dirty being a freight broker is exhibit A of, of how you can get that done. All right, Liz, uh, final question. Where can folks follow more of your work? You know, check out the TIA conference, all that good stuff. Yeah, connect with me on LinkedIn, Liz Wayne. Um, I've been slacking lately, but I'm trying to do my LinkedIn thing and 
and make sure I'm staying in better touch with people. But yeah, otherwise looking forward to seeing everybody at TIA. Blythe, will you be there? Uh, no, un- unfortunately, I, I, my best friend is, I know, I know I have a, you know, a, a good excuse. And that is my, my best friend. Um, she actually just gave birth, but I wasn't planning on going because her due date was the exact same week as that. So I was trying to, you know, be a good friend and now she's had her baby early and I feel like it's too late to, to make that thing happen. But next year for sure, I'll be there. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thank you, Liz, so much. Great insight. Great perspective. I'll link to your LinkedIn and the show notes, your website, TIA, all that good stuff right in the show notes. Thank you again. And I look forward to hearing all of the insight that you get um, from the conference. And then also the Women in Logistics luncheon that, that I, you know, a couple colleagues, Kaylee, who is on Freight Waves as well, is going to be there in attendance. So I thank you for, for putting forth that initiative. And we'll chat soon. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. All right, that was cool to get a, a firsthand perspective of what it's like, you know, as far as not necessarily what it's like working as a, a woman in logistics, but just working in logistics, period. And then just the challenges that arise in trying to get more women to see themselves as an employee working within this industry and how they can move up and how it really is a great career for a lot of folks out there that can eventually become something that is flexible and able to, you know, really work in other sectors of logistics, you know, really starting out, you know, with a trial by fire and getting your feet wet with uh, freight brokerage. So let's move into our final topic. And but first, before we get into our final interview of the day, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the future of supply chain. That conference is coming up. We can't talk about the TIA conference without talking about the Freight Waves conference. That's also coming up too. And that is from May. It's in early May. So May 9th to the 10th. Uh, tickets are still on sale. It's a March Madness special. So make sure you go over to the Freight Waves website, live.freightwaves.com in order to check that out because you definitely want to make sure that you secure your tickets. It's one of the top events industry-wide, really out of a lot of industries. It's one of the top things that you can take advantage of and learn so much from lots of different smart people. So highly, highly advise if you've never been to a Freight Waves event, now is a good time to, you know, sort of get your feet wet with, you know, in-person conferences again. So make sure you get your tickets over at live.freightwaves.com. And as we sort of set up the final interview, this is the final interview from my time at Manifest. So if you saw any of my YouTube, you know, creator in a kit, I was able to get, you know, uh, probably at least a half a dozen interviews. I can't even remember um, how many interviews we've gotten because we've been playing them at least once a week since the end of January. But the final one, save one of the best for last. That is Nick Chubb. He is the founder and managing director over at Theatus. He's a former merchant mariner. And so I think that you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation. Until next Thursday, we'll see you right back here Thursday, 2 p.m. All right, welcome into another episode of Cyberly. Once again, we are here live from Manifest the Future of Logistics. And I have another special guest, Nick Chubb. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell us a little about you. Awesome. Hi. Well, first <laughs> off, thanks for having me. Um, and yeah, really excited to be here. Uh, I'm Nick Chubb. I'm a um, former seafarer turned technology researcher, analyst. Um, so I've been working in the industry for about uh, 11 years now. Uh, kind of fell into tech after being at sea. Uh, and realized that actually there's some really exciting opportunities to bring digital technology into the maritime industry, which everyone kind of described as a bit archaic. 
Uh, and so, yeah, we started a company two and a half years ago doing that, and we've now grown to a um, small team of nine. We're all kind of ex-seafarers uh, who have a pretty good understanding of how the industry works, and we work with technology companies to help them uh, enter the maritime sector, and we work with maritime companies to help them get better at leveraging tech, because they're traditionally quite bad at it. <laughs> as far as like, tech adoption in this industry, it has a long way to go, I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, as, yeah. as you know. Now, you mentioned seafarers. Is that the same, forgive my ignorance, is that the same thing as a merchant mariner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. merchant marine, merchant navy, um, commercial seafarer, yeah, all, all the same. So, I, I used to mainly drive oil tankers as a navigator, um, but I didn't. I only did it for four years, so I didn't go up to captain or anything like that. It was just a, just a navigator. What got you into wanting to be a merchant mariner or a seafarer? Great question. Um, I don't really know. Uh, so, I, I, I actually had, I had two options. I could have gone to university to do music, um, but I was a terrible musician, <laughs> so decided that doing the kind of funded route, getting to travel, all those sorts of things would be better than um, going and then becoming a penniless musician. <laughs> well, do, do <laughs> so, you have, I mean, I'm sure you get to see so many, because I've interviewed Merchant Mariners before, and they, they talk about all of the different ports that they yeah. get to, to make a stop at and hopefully get to enjoy the city. Do you have a favorite place that you stopped at? Yeah, probably for me, um, I would say Mailiao in Taiwan. Oh, wow. Because we, we were stopping at an oil terminal uh, and it was the sort of place that a tourist would just never, never go. Uh, oh, wow. And so I, you kind of feel very, very lucky to go somewhere like that where you know you, you would just never get to go or never think to go as a, right. as a tourist. It's so, more like authentic experience. Yeah, probably. exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Although on that ship, I was on there for four and a half months and that was our only, the only time we got off. Oh, wow. So uh, yeah, the kind of reality of it is that you see the inside of a lot of ports, you see a lot of blue <laughs> and that's kind of it. <laughs> Did you ever experience uh, rogue waves out of sea? Uh, the, the odd hurricane, but never a, never a rogue wave. Because no. those terrify me, so that's yeah. why I, I, I looked okay. at YouTube videos yeah. of them, and so I'm like, well, that's not something I'm never going to do. <laughs> and now, how did you make the decision to transfer out of this seafarer life into more land-based living yeah. and join a tech team or, or start a tech team? Yeah, lo lots of reasons, really, I guess. I, I, I wanted to spend a bit more time at home, so, um, you know, the, my uh, girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, she was also at sea. And so for the first year we were together, I think we were apart for something like 11 months. And so we said, something's got to give, right? This isn't, this isn't going to work. So uh, we both came ashore at the same time. Uh, I, I couldn't get a job in shipping. Uh, I just, you know, applied to all sorts of things and couldn't find anything. So I actually just fell into, into sales in, in tech. Nothing to do with shipping, totally outside the industry. Um, and yeah, that was kind of when I realized oh, there's this really exciting opportunity to bring tech into shipping. So I kind of then started going back into shipping and started consulting kind of in that space between tech and maritime. Um, and then yeah, eventually kind of got to the point where I thought, I thought we'd love to scale up bit of a team around this, um, and that, that's kind of where Theteus came from. And so, with your company, Theteus, correct? Theteus, yeah. Theteus. So where did that company name come from? <laughs> um, so, Theteus, or, or I think I'm butchering it, I think it's Thetis, uh, is the, a Greek goddess who had the gift of foresight. A Greek goddess of the sea who had the gift of foresight. Um, uh, and so it's kind of a play on that because uh, a lot of what we do is about looking, researching into what's, what tech's coming down the line, what, what's sort of coming in the future um, uh, to, to the industry. Uh, and so, but if you 
If you search for Thetis, then everything about the Greek goddess comes up. So we added the U for SEO purposes. Nice. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So what does, it, what does your, your, your software do? Or, or is it a more of a consultancy? Tell us a little bit about the company. Yeah, a bit of both. So we, we have a technology intelligence platform. So it's kind of like a crunch base, but it's super, super niche down to, to shipping. Um, and that's really, I was a very frustrated Crunchbase user because you look at, you go on a Crunchbase and you look up shipping and you get everything from like last mile logistics to warehouse to stuff that actually goes physically onto ships and it's just super unhelpful. So we thought, well, can we make something that's really, really niche down? And that's what we did. It started as a spreadsheet um, and now it's more of a kind of SaaS platform. We, we charge a subscription for people to come on and they can basically search for interesting companies um, and then we have a team of analysts who use the data in that platform to uh, to produce research, um, and then we, we consult and do a couple of other things. So is but, it more like market research yeah. that you're providing to a specific niche audience? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So how are yeah. you approaching? I guess the, you know the, the marketing you just mentioned. You know, for SEO purposes, yeah, that yeah. was the reason why you chose that that business name. What about from your marketing approach? How are you getting the message out to to your target customers? So we we publish a huge amount of research for free. Um, so you've, if you go to thetis.com, you'll see all sorts of different things. Um, you know, everything from looking at you know the shipping's role in the wider supply chain and how tech can perhaps ease some of the congestion problems we've seen recently, down to things like seafarer fatigue and how tech can help with seafarer wow. fatigue. So we we just we find the best thing to do is just constantly be churning out interesting research, and that tends to mean that customers come to us um, rather than us having to go out to, to them. So yeah, no, it's it's good, it's good fun. Now you mentioned. Um... Uh, the, the, the seafarer and sort of, I guess, the life of, of, of being out on the sea constantly yeah. plays a, a role in mental health, is, of course. Um, I think there are a lot of initiatives that are moving forward trying to get, I guess, better life balance, if that's possible, yep. for the seafarers that are out yeah, there. Yeah. Um, do you have any personal experience where, where you might be able to help you know shed some light on, on the, I guess, the current state of emotions when you're out at sea and how maybe some of these companies can help? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So I think to set some context, uh, being at sea, it, it's a bit like being in prison, <laughs> except there's no internet and no TV. So it's kind of like, it's a, it can be worse, uh, if you like. Um, so for example, one of the ships that I worked on, uh, which wasn't that long ago, we would get email once per day and we could send email once per day. And that was kind of it for wow. connection to the outside world. There was a satellite phone but it was super expensive to use so you'd maybe call home once a month uh, and on that particular ship I was the only native English speaker uh, and at the start of the voyage there were I think 15 different nationalities on board so it was actually really nice really kind of multicultural experience and everyone spoke English by the time by the end um, there were only um, uh, Serbo Croats and Filipinos and then I was the English person uh, and so kind of everyone just spoke to each other in their own languages and there was sort of me sat in the middle and um, and so it can be really it can be a really lonely experience you're away from family you're away from friends sometimes you won't get off the ship for months at a time um, and in the last what 18 months two years since the pandemic started we've had seafarers who normally would do like a nine nine ten month contract just being stuck on board because of border restrictions all that sort of stuff and so there's been people stuck on board for two years wow. um, and equally at the same time there's people stuck at home who can't can't work because they can't get onto the ships so it's it's created a it's been a real kind of crisis really the last few years it's just starting to get better now but it's it's still going it's still ongoing as far as like your research do you provide research to, to help with that particular job role or is it more just all-encompassing of more like 
the tech side of things. Yeah, we, we've done a lot of research on crew welfare and tech uh, and kind of how tech can support crew welfare. And uh, there's some really interesting stuff sort of come onto the market. You know, we've, we've, um, we've seen, for example, new technology that can support uh, helping people to spot when they're fatigued. Because you, often you'll be the only, if you're navigating a ship, you might be the only person on the bridge. Yeah. And so if you're overly fatigued, there's a danger you might fall asleep, all of that sort of stuff. Safety issues, but, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And we've run, we've run innovation programs looking at how um, startups can support co big companies like um, uh, Shell, for example, um, that we ran a program with alongside in Marsat. Um, that was all about how we can use tech to improve safety on board. Um, wow. Really, really interesting stuff. Uh, and we ended up kind of implementing a smart fatigue management system on board one of their tankers, um, which was cool. Yeah, yeah, I, that's I, that's a whole other aspect of the job that I didn't really. I, I, I expected from like a mental health perspective that yeah. you know you, you want to obviously address it as best you can out yeah, at yeah. sea. But if there's other safety, I guess monitoring mechanisms that, that you can instill as well into different processes, it probably results in you know less insurance cases and uh, overall well-being of the the crew. That's yeah. That's, I mean, that, that's the theory. I, I, the reality is it's a really difficult area because you're... So it's a 24-7 operation, and absolutely most of the roles on board are kind of safety critical. Um, but you're also in... People, people live on board as well, so you're also in their homes. And so, like, you don't want to do anything that's too invasive. Um, uh, and, and, we you know, we often see, you know, some tech come up that is just would be super, super invasive for, an, you know, an employer wouldn't do it at home, so why would you do it on a ship where people live uh, for up to a year at a time? And so it's always kind of like this fine balance between supporting people and making sure they can stay safe and then being kind of like a big brother type, we're watching you. <laughs> and I'm sure your experience probably helps. Like, as a yeah. fast merchant mariner, you'd probably be like, ah, that's probably not a good fit. And that, for... that's why most of our team are former seafarers. So everyone on the research and delivery team, we've all been to sea on commercial ships. Um, we all have a really un good understanding of what works and what doesn't. And so when we get approached for a project, we can say, maybe that needs rethinking. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe come back and yeah. readjust yeah. a little bit. Now, as far as, you know, sort of, I guess, the state of, of maritime, the state of the yeah. industry, obviously, there's, it, it sort of went mainstream over the last yeah, two yeah. years. Yeah. And so you have more and more people that are interested within the, 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 the industry itself. But how are you guys, I guess, approaching some of the, the new age interest versus some of the legacy systems that are, are in place? So, you, know, you mentioned during your panel that there was some data sharing issues yeah. That, that could be alleviated. T tell us, uh, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, so I think, yeah, on, on the one hand, it's super exciting that the industry's kind of got to a point in the last 12 months where all of a sudden maritime has become kind of front and center as part of the supply chain, whereas previously it's been almost invisible. Uh, and I think in some ways that's really, really helpful uh, uh, because it, it actually kind of helps to, for example, is issues like the cr crewing crisis, we can kind of raise the visibility of all of that stuff. Um, but I think it also exposes a lot of where maritime as an industry is really bad. And I think collaboration generally, but data sharing is, is, is definitely one of those areas. I mean, we're, we're kind of only, we're only just getting to the point across the industry where people are happy to share safety data. So, um, uh, which feels like a no-brainer. Um, uh, it, it is kind of it's an area where everyone should be very very happy to share but it, just building up the right kind of digital infrastructure to do that all of the um, uh, you know to, 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 to actually be able to capture and then share that data is it's an investment um, and so 
things like more commercially sensitive data, like routing and scheduling data, um, we're still a long way off mm. kind of getting to that point. Is that something that the companies don't necessarily want to share, or they just haven't started that, that process of, of proper data collection? I think it's probably more the latter, mm. yeah. I, I think the, the, the pandemic was a massive accelerant for kind of digital transformation in the industry, um, but it's kind of taken, for, for a lot of shipping companies, uh, it's gone from, you know, just having fully on-premises IT infrastructure to migrating to like Microsoft 365. Wow. And that's like a big deal, you know, for the shipping industry, that's a big deal. That's kind of where we're at. And so- We've still got a long way to go. We've still got a long way to go, exactly, yeah. I, I think for a lot of shipping companies, you know, if you went to speak to someone in operations, they wouldn't necessarily know what an API was. You know, it's that, that kind of level of, of education. Um, there are definitely quite a few out there that do and, and are really forward-leaning, but um, I, there's kind of like a long tail in the industry of very small operators. They might be family-owned, um, uh, uh, you know, small fleet of ships. And so the investment required to, you know, move everything over to the cloud, start exposing APIs, hiring a small engineering team, uh, that's kind of, that's a, that's a lot to ask for. So with, with your experience and now building a tech company w within the maritime space, if I could give you a magic wand and you could fix two or three big problems within the industry, what would you fix? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's on the spot. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, speaking as a, as a seafarer, fixing the crewing issues would be, would be wonderful. Um, I mean, we could literally talk the entire day about, about crewing and all of the number of issues in there. Uh, but, but certainly, you know, some of the issues that have arisen in the last 12 months around people not being able to get home, not being able to see their families, um, that's been really tough. And it's had a genuine, you know, real kind of human impact. Like we've had huge spikes in suicide at sea, all that sort of wow. stuff. So if we can fix that, great. Um, happy days. Um, the next really big problem that needs to be fixed uh, is obviously, and it's the same everywhere, decarbonization is, you know, it, it, we're an industry that entirely at the moment runs on fossil fuels, apart from a very small number of exceptions. Uh, it's, I would say, both the biggest problem, but also the biggest opportunity that exists in this industry. I mean, it's just the scale of what needs to be done um, to get us to a point where we're even a kind of 50% reduction in carbon intensity across the industry is enormous. Are there any programs that you know of that are, are trying to address either one of those issues? So, uh, yeah, so on, on, on decarbonization, we're kind of at super early days. Uh, so there's, there's a few. So the International uh, Chamber of Shipping has recently launched a program uh, that they're proposing at the UN level, at the IMO, which is the kind of UN body for shipping that would be basically a, a, a carbon levy. So every ton of um, fossil fuel bunkers are sold. Something like 50 cents or uh, maybe a dollar, I can't remember the exact number, would go into an R&D fund. And then that would fund the research and development required to create carbon neutral fuels or carbon neutral engines. There's also the sea cargo charter, which was major cargo uh, interests, so cargo owners in the bulk space, have all come together to say they're now going to start um, measuring and then publishing their emissions data from sort of cargo discharge to cargo discharge, uh, which will create a level of transparency we've not really seen in the industry ever. Um, and Especially so that's, when only a handful of companies sort of control the, the majority of the market, if I understand correctly. 
Yeah, so the, the, the bulk space is a little bit different. So the, the container space, you're absolutely right, is 10 companies have, I think, 85% of the slots. Um, the bulk space, uh, there is still some very large interests um, who, who own a lot of the ships uh, and also obviously a, a lot of the cargo but then there's just a huge number of really small um, shipping companies that might have somewhere between two and five ships uh, and so kind of corralling all of that um, together is really really difficult so the fact that these charters have come out and said we're going to uh, all come together and, and actually start publishing this data uh, will kind of force everyone to, to take some action so that's quite exciting but it's still real baby steps. And so what could they possibly do? I mean, I, I know there, there's sort of the, the argument right now of the, the, the bigger versus the smaller ships, because the smaller ships can, can I guess, sail faster and get into some of the smaller ports. Um, but what is what can a ship realistically do to, to cut their carbon if they're, they're run off fossil fuels? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think when you, when you look at the, the question of decarbonization, I think if we go all the way out to like 2050 and beyond, uh, there are fuels that are being experimented on now, for example, like green ammonia that can be carbon neutral, that in theory could power ships, but a lot of R&D required, and then a lot of infrastructure is going to be required to actually, you know, you want th those fuels to be in all the ports that you need them to be in around the world. So that's going to take decades. Um, I think if you, you, you come back a little bit closer to where we are today with uh, ships that, that are um, uh, running on fossil fuels, there's actually a huge amount of inefficiency in the kind of global maritime value chain, if you like. Uh, and so depending on whose research you read, it can be sort of anywhere between 20 to 30% of a, of, a, of a ship's fuel consumption is actually wasted just through how the ship is operated. So if you, you, know, you look out of somewhere like Long Beach at the moment, there's 200 ships anchored. They've all gone at 12 to 15 knots over the Pacific Ocean and they're waiting for two weeks. And so being able to slow those ships down because they know they're gonna have to wait um, will massively help to reduce fuel, fuel consumption across the entire industry. Um, it's kind of, there's kind of like a network effect to it. That said, uh, it's really, really difficult to achieve for all sorts of reasons. The tech is one, and another is just um, that the incentives that exist across the industry um, between charters, between vessel owners, and between and vessel operators. So you could have three separate companies looking after a ship. Uh, they're not quite lined up to, for reducing fuel. So there's some structural changes that have to take place in the industry beyond that, the tech. I, I, you're exactly right because I think that that's sort of the safe assumption over the last couple of years, especially as these in maritime in particular, or the ports in particular, are, are getting a lot of criticism for, for not operating faster, but there's certain limitations and shippers aren't open 24 seven and you know, you, you have a shortage of your retention issue with drivers and, yeah, yeah. and all different kinds of issues where sort of the entire supply chain is operating in a silo when there could be yeah. more collaboration. And I think yeah, that, yeah. that was sort of the ethos of, of your, your talk here at Manifest. All right, uh, Nick, where can, where, where can we expect or where would your goals be for the, you and the company within a couple of years? Or maybe oh, wow, just a year, because I know it's tough to, to sort of predict <laughs> anything in the future right now. Uh, yeah. but, but how about, you know, maybe a year from now? Sure. So we, we uh, today we're, we're quite a small 
global team. Um, we want to double that team in the next 12 months or so. Uh, we, we're constantly kind of on the lookout for, for talented people to kind of join us from, a, from the research angle. So I'm just going to put that out to everyone. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we, we, we're doing really, really interesting work, really interesting projects. Um, we want to do more of it. Um, and particularly, um, we want to, this is part of the reason I'm here at Manifest, is that we want to kind of look a little bit beyond the maritime industry, go beyond those silos that you're talking about and start looking at things like energy and logistics and um, continue some of the work we've been doing in maritime in, in those sectors as well. I'm sure it would help a lot of your research papers as well. So it sounds like exactly. you, you have yeah, a great yeah. system going on and a bright outlook on the future. Where can folks follow more of your work and, and, and your company's work? Uh, yeah, so uh, Thetius.com is the best place to go. Um, that's where all of our research gets published and all of the uh, research analysts who are much smarter than I am that work on our team uh, publish all of their research. Uh, huge amount of free stuff on there. Um, or find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'm uh, Nick Chubb on LinkedIn or NA Chubb on Twitter. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. And, awesome. and enjoy Thank the rest you. of Manifest. Thanks very much. <laughs>